1: Foundation Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co host is Warren Prize Professor Jeremy Siegel author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Church affiliates. We're gonna have a really interesting show. One of the hot topics in the investment world is investing with a lens referred to as ESG, environment, social governance. And we have a guest whose company's focused on providing unique data and insights into this world. It'll be a really interesting conversation. Uh, Professor Siegel, we have the market staying robust, somewhat quiet week, I would say, I guess, but all-time high still in the S&P. What are, what are you focused on?
2: yeah I mean um things are happening, but when you look at the markets, you say that mean not much has changed the trend is upward um Nasdaq keeps on inching to new highs s and p of course hit a high this uh week uh so so let's talk a little bit about what you know may move the markets later um uh i I thought that Biden's speech last night, uh, winding up the Democratic convention was quite decent. Of course, people say the expectations weren't high. I think he beat low expectations. Uh, I was rather surprised. I was uh, looking at the betting markets and not see any little pop at all for Biden. I uh, did not see any negative either. Uh, yeah, they're they're very much the way they've been for the last month uh, in the betting markets uh 60 to 43 Biden over Trump um, the uh the the senate has narrowed a little bit it's 58 44 that the Dems will take over uh the senate um, uh, there has been a tightening and some of the polls uh, show it's tightening and then one of the Mo- uh, Muhlenberg polls interestingly enough um, which was in the state of Pennsylvania actually ask people, you know, uh, are they better off since uh, financially than before Trump uh, took on the presidency? And uh, uh, definitely much more people said, yes, they were. And it was not that much different than February, despite the COVID crisis in finances, even though they blame Trump for not handling it properly. Um, they still think that they are better off financially the polls still think the Republicans will do a better job with the economy the economy is not everything but uh that I think is the reason why uh uh trump is is holding in there uh, on the cares act people i i mean i I mentioned last week I think you know the Dems could be just saying hey let's stonewall this and if the economy gets worse that it benefits us in November third election so you know, maybe the next two and a half months we're not going to have a deal. Um, and that's, of course, the, the uh, Republicans uh, cave in on, on, on everything. Um, uh, now it's had very little effect, which has shocked people. You know, people talk about, oh, my God, the fiscal cliff. Well, you've you got to remember a number of things. And first of all is that um, uh, unemployment. Unemployment stayed the same. It's the bonus of $600, which went down to three or $400, depending on how the states handle it. Still a huge amount of money. Um, now, what, what, what isn't there is an uh, extension of PPP, the PPP Payment Protection Program. A lot of firms are you know, waiting and saying, so I keep on my employees or not. If I'm not going to get kids, then I'm going to lay them off, and they're going to go on the unemployment rolls um which is going to hurt small business even more i mean um we've talked about this uh you know this, this, this standoff just hurts small business against large business and um, um uh, which is very very unfortunate but not bad for the stock market um you know we had a you know a company like deer certainly not a temp company that really really beat expectations um, it's not just the NASDAQ companies that are uh, doing well. Others are, are doing well. Again, some of the main themes that we've talked about, a productivity bounce as, as firms decide this is the time I can clean up, I can lay off the workers, I don't have to go, they're going to get bonus unemployment, to, you know, and I have an excuse, uh, demand is down, uh, I'm going to do what I had been what what wanting to do. Uh, this is what I think uh, is fueling the expectations for 2021 uh, going uh, going forward. Uh, I think there's going to be a productivity boost as a result of the of the fact that uh, you know it's hey it's, I'm going to do spring cleaning, a lot of things I didn't need, and and now, and now I bounce upward. Of course, we talked about the permanent changes. Um, You know, when are business meetings coming back, when is business travel coming back? I think leisure travel will come back. Um, There was an article today, uh, actually came out of Bloomberg News, that it talked about the trillion dollars of savings of people who just haven't, you know, that have been building up balances because they haven't gone out and they haven't traveled. And this is a huge repository of spending power for for 2021 and i think that that's what the stock market looks at as far as who will win the presidency and, and taxes it uh, honestly uh, uh liquidity and purchasing power trumps the presidency and uh, who will take over all this money that's being thrown in and will be thrown in is uh is is feeding expectations of higher corporate profits for next year, and a Fed that's going to stay low for a long, long time, and and let this economy uh, run.
1: I want to remind our listeners we've got a new feature where they can write in questions to Professor Siegel each week. You can email us at ask Siegel s i e g e l ask Siegel at wisdomtree com, and we're going to try to get through. As many of your questions each week as we can, and Professor, one of the themes, based on what you've been talking about, you know, every week, uh, and we continue to get questions on it, and you know, you, you're talking about this. All that liquidity in the system, rising inflation, and you've been talking about gold being attractive. And one of the questions was, uh, we addressed this in some ways last week as well. Uh, you know, you, you think about rates rising. You know, I think some of the people think that the the support for gold has been by the falling negative real rates. And then, how do you think about if rates rising but gold being attractive on inflation? How do you sort of reconcile those two right. two views there?
2: Well, w- again, the story is that l- that short rates will stay. Near zero. The Fed is just not going to raise the Fed funds target until unemployment goes way down, and, it, and it's going to be a while before that happens. Long rates are going to start moving up, but I think inflation is going to move up at least as much as, as the long rates go up. So the result <laughs> will be that the, the, there'll still be negative real rates. So, you know, I'm, I mean, let's put it this way. If if inflation running 4%, I, I don't think a 1.5%, uh, a 2% uh, treasury bond is going to be really attractive. In other words, it's not going to go up enough. So I think that uh, the Fed, by now, the Fed, if it was really serious about fighting inflation, should start r- rising. But I think the political pressures will be overwhelming. And by the way, um, if. Biden wins, uh, the political pressures are even going to be stronger. No increase in rate until we get the unemployment rate down below 5 and 6%, and that may take a long time. Um, and so as a result, I think that gold, commodities, real assets will remain very attractive um, in, in the coming uh, environment again. We talked about the declining dollar, which is actually good for stocks, good for gold. Well, a little bit bounced back in the dollar. You know, no, no speculative market is A one-way street. You're going to have re- uh, the trend followers think it is. You know, they'll be, be there until there's a reversal. We had a little bit of a bounce in, in the dollar yesterday, but uh, you know, the the trend is still a weak uh, a weak dollar and uh, liquidity feeding feeding um, inflation um, as the economy comes back.
1: The the other question one of the other questions was was tied to this and it was sort of more on the mechanics of the Fed's balance sheet, the liabilities and the deficit spending. And and the question is it's you know, sort of asking about the mechanics of the Fed printing money to fund the deficit and how that's tying into the views on on inflation.
2: Right. So um uh Basically, basically what's happening is all the deficit, the debt that's being floated um, by the Treasury to pay for the tax rebates to pay for the uh, uh, CARES Act and all that is being bought by the, the Federal Reserve. Um, and is creating these reserves for the banking system. Some of it's held as excess reserves. Some of it's going right into the pockets of individuals. I mean, you get a tax cut. Basically, the, the government is just crediting twelve hundred dollars to your checking account, which you never had before. Or if they're cutting the payroll tax, you know that that's a question about whether he really has authority. Any of those tax cuts are basically just credits by the bank, and uh, the the bank's got, been given reserves to cover all all that. That's basically how that money gets out in existence. And as we talked about, if it gets out into the checking accounts, into the savings account, by the way, um uh, we had a little bit of a down I look every week on the money supply comes out Thursday afternoon. We had a little bit of a downtick on M one but M two just continue to surge to new highs, broader money. Money is still, although not growing as fast as March, April, May, is still going growing very fast if there is a cares act 2 and and more i expect some more liquidity to feed into that system but basically that's how it works is uh, how you know how do you get that money um, uh into your checking account oh i got a 1200 hundred dollar rebate basically uh you know the bank is uh is uh, uh the, the federal reserve is giving you that check and giving the bank that money to back that uh uh uh, uh checking account
1: uh, and And tax and tax rebate. Uh, it's uh, always great to get your your opinion on these things. Thanks again for some commentary to start the show and, and as always as, answering the questions that people are getting to ask Siegel at wisdomtree.com.
2: Yeah, thank you very much and uh, we'll we'll see you again next week. Have a good one.
1: We are going to turn our conversation to Ben Webster, who is the CEO at Owl Analytics. Owl is a provider of financial data, research, and indexes whose mission is to make the world a better place by helping clients Integrate alternative data sets like environmental, social governance, ESG data into their strategies for better performance, sustainability. Uh, and Ben does it all at OWL. He sort of looks at overseas sales, operations, product development. Uh, Wisdom Tree happens to be a client of OWL Analytics, uses some of their data for our investment strategies. Ben, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thanks for coming on the show.
0: Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you having me.
1: So maybe tell our listeners as as CEO, you know, and 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 you your, your your bio describes a huge mission to make the world a better place by helping integrate these new data sets. Maybe talk a little bit about your background and how you think you're you're trying to achieve that making the world a better place mission.
0: Well, I'm happy to do so. Well, it, it, you know, as far as my background, I mean, um Yeah, I've been in the financial industry for a large majority of my career, uh, dating back to when I graduated with a degree in physics from UCLA in 1996. Um, A large portion of that time was spent working with hedge funds, um, um, other types of investment uh, managers like real estate operators, real estate fund um, managers, um, and other kind of alternative asset classes. Um, Base capital and, and uh, position themselves to uh, build growing businesses. Um, however, in um, right around 2010, 2011, I got introduced to the concept of impact investing and eventually got um, very interested in it. And um, it's twin or it's Sibling ESG investing, which stands for environmental, social, and governance investing, and you know, I, you know, what, what intrigued me about it was that there's this whole group of of, of people and uh, business people in the financial industry that i would never heard about that were trying to figure out ways to to utilize how they invested their money to influence. Um, change that they wanted to enact in the world. And um, there's many, many ways of doing this. And I think that's one of the most confusing topics to um, investors at large is what is ESG investing? What is impact investing? What is response investing? And, and I'm happy to get into that a bit more. But what, I, what intrigued me about it was I became convinced that there was a way to make the world a better place um, um, as well as um, in- increase uh, your risk-adjusted returns, increase make make sure you perform better um, on your investments by taking into account um, environmental, social, and governance issues. Um, and I decided that I wanted to uh, make a transition in my career towards doing something that that. Um, that not only interested me uh, from a you know kind of a data head perspective from a you know quantitative perspective but something also uh that appealed to you know the five-year-old kid in me who wanted to uh you know help people and and do great things and and make the world a a good place and so was able to figure out a way to hopefully marry marry the two you know and uh, you know little steps at building a company and and working with great companies like our clients wisdom tree and others and uh, you know i think we're, we're we're making some progress
1: so how would you say you know the the where where are you where you say if you were to say the the trend towards esg investing how would you describe where we are in the transition to that like what what's the you know the state of that transition and maybe you could compare the us to say the european markets as, as an example here
0: yeah that's a great question um so, you know, and to some extent, this necessitates going into a little bit of what ESG is um, versus impact investing versus what, what often people consider socially responsible investing. So um in the United States, as well as in Europe, um, for years and years, people employed what they called socially responsible investing. And socially responsible investing... Is very much a way of screening out investments, certain investments from your portfolio, based on the type of business those those uh, those companies are in, um, and it's a very much of an ethical lens to investing. So, for example, um, if if you are not um, um, a fan of tobacco products, for example, you would eliminate any companies that that um, that you know produce tobacco products you may not like adult entertainment. You may think that's ethically wrong, or you may not um, want to invest in companies that, that uh, produce cluster munitions, right? Um, so th- there's all these, you know, what I'll, what I'll call here ethical screens, and the, the, the philosophy was, hey, let's, let's eliminate these types of companies from the portfolio so I align the companies I invest in with, you know, certain products and services that I that – I, do not have ethical issues with and I eliminate companies from my portfolio that I have ethical issues with regarding their products and services. Um, and that's been around for, I mean, the origins of that go back to probably the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, and um, it's remained a fringe part of the investor base in the United States for for all that time until recently. In Europe, on the other hand, it's you know while I would say it's not the norm it it, it it was definitely more than a fringe part of the market um, it's you know you do have a, a, a good it's not the majority but you probably for decades have had um, uh, you know I, I can't name exact percentages but if if I was to take a guess on my head maybe 10 to fifteen percent of that market investing in that way compared to the United States where it was it was much lower what's changed though is starting about Ten years ago, but really around 2014 and 15, um, there just increasing number of uh, number of papers and academic research which started to come out, which start, demonstrated that companies that uh, like publicly traded companies that take into account um, ESG issues in and how they operate their businesses, and uh, you know a, a good example of an issue may be you know, food contamination for, for, for companies in the restaurant business, right? If you eliminate incidences of food contamination, you may not accidentally get your customers sick, which may, which would affect the stock price, right? So a, a lot of research, and that's one of, you know, obviously potentially thousands of types of ESG issues, um, and each ESG issue, you know, is relevant to some industries and not others, but uh, the, the concept was a lot of research that came out. Showed that if these companies are proactive in in preventing uh, or or reducing the the, the chance of certain um, negative incidences revolving ESG happening to their company, it could actually lead to better operational results and therefore better stock results. Uh, you know, stock movement. You know, uh, performance of their of stock prices. Um, and that research really, really um, is what. Um, created this boom in ESG investing that you see now and where ESG um, for at least asset managers and asset owners is becoming even in the United States a a central component of of what they need to look at when they're evaluating investments and what to invest in or what funds to invest in or or what have you um, however here it has not quite Penetrate in the United States the kind of the wealth management market, or what, what, what I would call maybe the retail market uh, for, you know, registered investment advisors uh, for your, your individual investors, um, who primarily invest in funds. and There's a lot of hurdles that have prevented it from becoming more popular there. Uh, however, in Europe, as well in other places like Japan, it's picking up It's a lot faster in, in that, that part of the market than it is here, um, because... Especially in Europe, they, you know, it's it's been much more in the forefront of, of their investment consideration uh, and analysis for just a bit longer than it has been here. But if they were made a few years behind, we'll catch up.
1: Let me uh, just reintroduce our guys. We're talking with Ben Webster, the CEO of Owl Analytics, about ESG investing, some of the trends he sees. Uh, and, and it is interesting. I, mean, I, I talk we have a team in Europe and, and, and obviously a, a big team in the U.S. And, you know, it does feel like it's almost more of like a requirement in Europe that a lot of the for sure, like the big pension funds, if you aren't incorporating those kind of considerations, you know, you're sort of like not in, in the mix. Um what, mm-hmm. now in the US the the mentality is there's you know all over the map in terms of do they and I think one of it being people are skeptical it can add to the returns experience do you any you know when you talk about you know you, your your just description talks about not just making the world a better place but also better investing experiences uh, and actually better performance how do you how do you see your ratings contributing to performance what what kind of research do you do you have on that
0: Yeah um um, there's a there's a number of papers that um, that have been released that demonstrate that um, performance can um, can be improved uh, through through uh, through you know utilizing our company's Owl Analytics ESG ratings. Um, one uh, you know is uh, uh, one is called um, um, sorry at the top of my head going green. Means being in the black, um, and that's that's a paper that's been going around, and it's been recently been named uh, one of the top ten uh, um, you know ESG research papers um, that that was released that was released in 2020. Um, Axioma uh, a company that we've worked uh, closely with in the past, uh, put out uh, a couple different white papers using our data. One of them looked at Benchmark indices across the world and took our ESG ratings and looked at them as kind of a, a kind of a z-score approach so they could optimize those indexes uh, to have a higher um, um, ESG uh, score than the benchmarks while at the same time controlling for other factor risks and demonstrated that you know in a, a, good, a good majority of the cases, performance was improved um, n- not, n- not necessarily by much but it was improved um, also in the in the incidences when it performance wasn't improved um, oftentimes the the in those indices where performance wasn't improved the change in or the, or the, de- the, the degree degradation of performance the magnitude of that was a lot smaller than the magnitude of the increased performance. In the indices where performance improved, and they also found an increased information ratio um, and more often than not decreased volatility. So there's just a lot of research which which demonstrates that you know it is additive. Um, and papers continually to come out. I think the big question is why is it additive? Why can ESG um, um, in help increase performance? And that's a that there, there's definitely a lot to dig into there if you wanted to go into
1: that no I think that's gonna be one of the big questions is not just you know has it has it helped that big question of why uh, and and getting into attribution and you know some people say well a lot of the environment says you're just going to be underweight energy energy has been a disaster for the last decade and plus and and perhaps some of these things are, are reliant on, on energy underweights um, you know, maybe any commentary you have on, on the why we could, we could start here now
0: yeah, so let me address the energy one first. That's that's great. There was a Wall Street or, a Journal article which came out, I don't know, it was maybe about three four years ago now, where where it was it was talking about how ESG, you know, or, or social responsible investing did increase performance. And when you read into the article, there was kind of like hidden in the small print per se. The you know it wasn't the small print, but it was in the body of the article where yeah, it was it, it, a lot of that had to do with the the, the energy sector, right? Um, That said, kind of referring back to that axioma study, um, that's one of the things they did is they tried to make um, things like industry and sector to be neutral, right? And so the performance increase in performance had nothing to do with 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 that exposure, which is great. Um, Now, turning it into why, you know, I think this is a good kind of an analogy that I like to use. I don't know if it's good, but um, uh, hopefully, it'll be effective analogy. When you analyze a sports player and you're looking at their stats, right? And their stats could be amazing. Uh, Let's say say there's one player and his stats are amazing or her stats are amazing, right? But she's starting to eat tons of junk food and not in the background, not train as hard. You may not see it in in the stats right away, but projecting to the future, if you knew what was happening there, you would maybe want to trade that player while the value is high because of how they were treating their body. Right. But that doesn't show up on the stats that the average sports head is looking at. Right. Conversely, you could have a player that's not playing that well, um, but is training his or her butt off eating well. And if you knew about that, maybe you want to trade for that player because the stats could go up very similarly. With stocks, a lot of people look at, a lot of investors look at the publicly disclosed data uh, about you know financial performance, right? They may look at you know 10Ks, 10Qs, annual reports, all that type of stuff, right? And and they have access to all this information that everyone else has access to, right? And it's very hard to get an edge there, right? Um, but there's all these things happening at a company and the way that company operates that are typically not disclosed. In normal and normal uh, regulated disclosures, right? And get you know, it's it, 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 people kind of think this ESG thing is an, a new phenomenon. It's not really a new phenomenon. It's it's a, an ongoing phenomenon, just a different name. You know, for, for years and years and years, you know, investment analysts have been trying to find out information about how a company operates that is above and beyond or deeper than the, what's publicly disclosed. It's why they interview, you know. On calls, they get asked questions and what have you. You're trying to get insight as what's going on in that company and how it operates. That could, that that's not part of the, what everyone else has access to information. Everyone else has access to that could potentially affect future performance. And we, you know, I referred to this earlier about food contamination. everyone knows about Chipotle, right? You know, not everybody, but if you don't know about it, Chipotle's had enough. There, there was food, documented food contamination, and their, their customers got sick, and it, it really hurt the stock, right? And that goes into, okay, maybe we as analysts or investors who are looking at investing in, in restaurants, maybe we need to pay attention to food safety as an ESG issue. Like, what are they doing to make sure that the food is, is is not contaminated in any way, not rotten, doesn't it, it doesn't have, you know, harmful bacteria that could hurt our customers, right? And that becomes an ESG issue that you should look at, and there's a cost to do it, right? You spend you have to spend a lot of money to 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 make sure your food is safe. And so that could also hurt performance if uh, you know, in the short run, but in the long run, if it, prevents a number of out of, of, of contamination events um, um, you're going to avoid those big hits to your stock when that does happen so that's just a, an, an example of a, a very commonsensical example of an ESG issue that's relevant to food the companies in the food industry um, and you could go industry by industry and bring out common sense examples of things that are obviously materially relevant to to that industry that investors should know about and think about when looking at stocks
1: this has uh, been a great start to the conversation we're we'll going to be talking with Ben Webster for the remainder of the program. You're listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Ben, you know, I one of the things as a as a data collection provider, you guys have a unique spin on how you are providing readings, analytics. Maybe let's talk a little bit, so getting into the specifics of what your firm does, how it compares to some of the other leading providers of data. I know one of the, the the big debates and questions is how good is the data. So, so let's get into some details about what you guys do and and how it compares to the industry.
0: I uh, appreciate. It. Happy to do so. Um, so, taking a step back, um, let's. Add, uh, what we do is we provide. ESG ratings, that's one of the things we do. We, we do a lot of other types of ESG and social responsible investment data work that we provide our clients, but we're, we're known uh, very much for our, our, our ESG ratings. And um, to, to start, we have to ask yourself, what is an ESG rating? Uh, I like to compare them to, to bond ratings, right? Um, a bond rating is, the goal of that is to measure the risk involved with um, investing in a bond, whether that issuer of that bond is able to pay the coupon as well as pay back the principal, right? Um, ESG ratings is is very similar in that what you're trying to do is you're trying to uh, rate how well a company is managing their risks associated with ESG environmental S, social and G governance risks that are materially relevant to that business in, in most cases to that industry um, and that business within that industry right um, is not a measure of how socially responsible um, that business is it's meant to find the cross-section of, at those of those ethical issues those socially responsible issues um, and materiality. There could be – there are thousands of ESG issues, but there are only certain ESG issues that we look at for each industry in order to rate companies um, on ESG in those industries because those issues are materially relevant. Think of it as a risk rating. How well those companies managing their ESG risks? Okay? So we're, we employ a big data approach where we – Aggregate hundreds of sources of ESG data, information, um, and ratings, and our um, kind of um, objective function is to look at what each of these sources thinks are the relevant ESG issues for each industry, and developed a, a or offer a wisdom of the crowds type of model where we're rating each company on what the group of, of, of the world's leading ESG uh, research sources say are the materially relevant issues regarding ESG for that industry. Um, and, and that's what we do. We cover over 20,000-something companies, uh, and we rate them monthly. What's different about what we do is that you know we're not taking um, our own stance on what we believe is uh, which ESG issues are relevant for each industry. Um, where our, our goal is really to try to find what the crowd of researchers is saying are the relevant issue, issue, issues for each industry and rate companies in that industry on, on those relevant issues. What most of the market does is kind of employ a traditional uh, approach in that they, you know, a lot of them have armies of analysts, and those analysts are responsible for covering certain companies, and they are... Um, you know, trying to analyze what ESG risks are are relevant to that company, and and then rating that company on that. The problem is is that, um, and this is one of the reasons why what we do is so relevant, is that um, not all the ESG research companies agree on which ESG issues are relevant to which which industry. In fact, that you would say they disagree more than they agree, and. That has led to, back when we started, was not a well-known phenomena, but it's becoming a well-known phenomena, and that's the divergence of ESG ratings. Any company, whether it's Tesla, IBM, Toyota, you name it, they could have a good ESG rating with one research provider and have an, an okay ESG ratings with yet another research provider and a, a potentially poor ESG rating. With yet another ESG ratings provider, research provider, and this subjectivity of ESG ratings is due, you know, there's a lot of reasons, but the largest, you know, the most, you know, uh, I would say the reason that that's definitely the biggest contributor to the divergence in the ESG ratings is that each of those research firms really can't agree on which issues are relevant for which industry, right. um, and we hope that our approach is a more objective approach. Because we're leveraging the wisdom of numerous ESG researchers to identify what the group thinks is relevant rather than, you know, just our own opinion of what we think is relevant. Does
1: that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I mean, and, and talk about the scalability of a business model where you, where each of these firms has, uh, as you talk about, like a, a, an army of analysts going through it, and you're uh, you're applying this more ensemble method where you'll have a number of different inputs from a number of different providers, and then trying to aggregate them all into you know like a composite rating, essentially. You know, instead of relying on one person's definition, and it's sort of fascinating how often you would think companies disagree on companies, you know, in terms of what their what their ratings might be, but you're you're sort of leveraging. The that wisdom of the group,
0: yep. And uh, and uh, to add some more color, I don't. Those re- other other research companies, they're doing a fantastic job. I don't ever want to give the impression that they're not doing a great job. They are. They're just working in a very hard, working with a very hard. Um, how should I say it? Data set. So first of all, ESG disclosure is not regulated, right? Like like financial disclosures are. So any given company can, can you know decide to. Uh, disclose certain ESG information about their company and, and, and on, on different ESG issues, and they can change what they're reporting on from year to year, and they could change how they're reporting on, on, on stuff from year to year. So if, if you know, that's looking at one company, now look at a company in the same industry, and if they're each reporting on, on different ESG issues, how do you really truly make an apples-to-apples comparison when the data you're working with To compare them is not is not um, the same, Um, and so that is a huge issue, Um, and so uh, that so that makes it hard to to work with. um, The second issue is that while there is an increasing amount of research referred to in the call demonstrating the kind of how ESG uh, considerations can help improve investment performance. Um, and there's a lot of papers around that. There's not a lot of papers which go into the how how the best way to say it, the fundamental reason why an, an issue, it was certainly issue issue, um, may you know may actually be material, materially relevant to an industry. So, like for example, I brought the Chipotle, the Chipotle uh, food contamination incident. Um, it, it's pretty obvious it was material relevant. It hurt. The food contamination incidents hurt the stock price, but is there a research paper which systematically looks at all companies in the restaurant industry and analyzes the issue of food contamination in a in a in a in a um, rigorous um, um um in a, in a rigorous uh, I look out of the word I'm looking for uh, but basically a rigorous uh, bottoms up analysis and scientific analysis of why that, that issue is relevant there's just not a lot of that out there. Right. A lot of it very much like, well, it's obvious this is relevant to the food industry. Look, right. Just use your common sense. So the problem is like, like most conventional wisdom type thinking, um, is that sometimes conventional wisdom is right. Oftentimes conventional wisdom is, is wrong. And, and unfortunately, um, until there's a lot more research, and it's and you know it's it's more more of it's happening, but um and it, it, but it's going to be years before there's a lot of you know definitive research that looks at ESG issue by ESG issue and definitively proves that something is uh, certain issues relevant to to an industry. Um, for now, it's more of the common sense approach to go this this issue is relevant to this industry why, and and you know kind of connecting the dots from a kind of a, you know, a, 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 you know, just like talking it through and seeing the relevance in your own mind, not based on primary research. And and that's why our approach, leveraging the wisdom of the crowd, is so important, because obviously their viewpoints aren't the same, and the conventional wisdom that one thinks is, you know, rational isn't necessarily what another ESG research thinks is rational, and you know that's why we decided not to go that direction and instead leverage the wisdom of the crowd. And there's a lot of research which demonstrates that the wisdom of the crowd, uh, especially a wisdom of a crowd of experts, um, is oftentimes better than the viewpoint of any one individual expert.
1: No, yeah, that makes a, makes a lot of sense. Let me remind us, we're talking with Ben Webster, CEO of Owl Analytics, a, a firm focused on uh, ESG rating analytics and and one of the new trends in investing. Ben, when you think about for people who are skeptical, you know of of ESG, and you know they they you know there's people who say we should be buying only those, uh, you know th- that there's become less demand for these stocks as as people like you, you know and through your ratings, you know started encouraging people to buy less of some of these companies that they there be less demand and and so sort of the there will be higher returns to quote unquote sin stocks. Um, any any sense of you know when you think about what the um, in terms of of the types of, of, of clients that you see these as strategies appealing to that, that might offset some of those skeptics?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I don't want to seem like I'm not giving, answering your question directly, but I'd, I'd like to approach it from a different angle, right? You can't look at ESG in a vacuum. It has to be part of of your uh, 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 just one component of your analysis process when investing in a stock, right? So like you, you raised a great point, right? If if people are if people are wholesale eliminating tobacco companies or eliminating oil and gas companies from their portfolios, those are going to be cheap, and other investors in the marketplace are going to pick those up, right? And hopefully make a great return. Similarly, you could have ESG stocks that you know, have great ESG characteristics and those can be bought up because there's a demand for ESG. So what I would say is, um, I think people are looking at, you know, I think they're simplifying something that is inherently more complex. You know, it's simple from the concept of, of yes, ESG issues are relevant from an operational perspective to, to companies. and, a company, all things being equal, a company uh, that has better as, and manages their ESG risks better than a, compa- a competitor, everything else being equal, will probably have, perform operationally better over time because they've eliminated those those risks to their business that could really hurt them. How that's reflected in the stock price, you know, is a completely different type of thing, because, like I said, you know, the Independent of what they're operationally doing, the market could bid those companies up, bid them down. Um, a whole range of things could be happening in the world that could could affect the price of that stock. So you need to look at it as part of your overall mosaic, not the only consideration. But again, the data points out that over time, like when the, the coronavirus pandemic hit, companies that had better ESG characteristics didn't get hit as much. Is that because... They're better operationally, or is that because of the psychology of the market, thinking that those stocks are less risky? You know, it's, it's a deep question, and I don't have all the answers. All I could say is if you're not looking at it as part of your overall investment making pro- decision-making process, then you have a, a, a huge blind spot that you're not, not looking at, and that's not a good thing if you are managing money.
1: Yeah, and and for people in the in the wealth management space, you know, I I think the one of our worldviews is that, that the you know there is just a, some generational divide in in thinking, and that the, the you know you could say the millennials, the younger generation. Supposedly cares more on these ESG oriented issues, and you know, and and if you're doing it in a way that you know, to your point, there's not really a return sacrifice. I mean, I think the pushback as you as people start hearing about them, they get skeptical on is this a return thing? Is doing good for the world? You know, is that you know, if you're thinking about the the investment lens, is that what you should be thinking about? And uh, you know, but the, the younger generation is is cares more about these. And if you want to have solutions to appeal to that generation, be, being ESG front and center could become increasingly more important. Do you see that generational being accurate? Yeah, I think
0: I think the, the combination of the research that has shown that integrating ESG into your portfolio can improve investment results. Combined with the bottoms-up demand of the younger generation, and I, I don't—I know don't, I'd be remiss if I—if I didn't point out the female populace as well. Um, um, that you know, and oftentimes, as we you know, <laughs> women can be a lot wiser than men. Um, and and uh, that, you know that, that the, the the younger generation, the female populace, that demand that's there, married with these 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 research results. Um, that have come out has really greatly increased, um, uh, you know, the demand for ESG and made it front and center in in uh, in uh, you know uh, many many conversations at the institutional level, the asset management level, the the uh, the asset owner level. Uh, it's the problem is in the in the space where it's you're you're an individual investor or you know a small you know family office what have you, and you you're not necessarily investing in individual stocks you don't necessarily have money to buy ESG data your your exposures through funds right and your your um, your job when you're looking at funds is how is the fund manager I'm investing in how how are they integrating ESG into their investment process which yep. is is a different question than how is this company managing their ESG risks, right? So, um, you know, for a long, long time now, there's been, you know, funds which are labeled, you know, ESG funds, ETFs, or ESG mutual funds, or social sponsor mutual funds, right? And, and they're marketing themselves as that, right? But the average fund that's out there, the average mutual fund, the average ETF, they, they are investing in companies, right? And those companies are doing something uh, or, or are either managing their ESG risks well or poorly or, or, or what have you. So, so there are ESG exposures in every ETF, in every mutual fund, uh, whether they're called a mutual fund or an ETF or not. And, and the, the, this part of the market needs to start finding an inexpensive way – to not necessarily utilize, they don't necessarily have, have to use ESG from the ground up to create a portfolio. But the advisors, the wealth managers, need cost-effective tools where they can look at any fund, whether it's an ESG or not ESG ETF or mutual fund. What doesn't matter what's labeled, and examine the ESG characteristics so they can know the risks in that fund regarding ESG compared to that fund's peers. Right. That leads Damn. to an
1: interesting question. So is uh, you know, so obviously we I, I know we have a business relationship. I can buy you know your, your ratings analytics and look at individual companies and, and get a sense of how they score on your ratings. Uh, can individual consumers here, you know, maybe talk a little bit more about our analytics, what you guys do? Can a a RIA or wealth manager get some of those tools to look at how their strategies score on different metrics that you guys provide? They
0: can't. And and you know, uh, uh, without getting too much into pricing of ESG data, um, it's it's, ESG data is very inaccessible to to advisors, especially smaller advisors, because um, of of the just the pricing, right? Um, And so um, they can, and 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 we we look at the use case for each potential client. How much money they manage? What, what, what? Again, what are they going to be using it for? And we try to price accordingly. Um, however, I think a better approach is, is, and I'm hopefully you know, I, I can't talk too much about this now, but it's it's starting to be something that I think in the next year to two is going to become more commonplace um, uh, compared to now. Is bringing ESG data into portfolio analytics and portfolio reporting platforms, right? That way, when an investor logs in, they don't have to buy the ESG data. Their their advisor, or their wealth manager, or or their or or the the financial technology platform is going to have that data in there, right? And yeah. hopefully, hopefully, one either that um, financial technology company, wealth manager, or advisor has is buying it and providing access to their clients. Um, in such a way that even if the clients have to pay for it, it's a, it's a very small amount, um, or it's it's small enough that the wealth manager or R.A. can pay for it. And it's right there at the fingertips of the, of the R.A., at the, the fingertips of the wealth manager and the fingertips of their client. They don't have to do anything. They don't have to access the raw data. They don't have to map any of it and do all the data wrangling that I'm sure you are very familiar with, I'm very familiar with, that makes working with, a dash of this nature very very cumbersome it'll already be be integrated into a platform and it'll be available at a click of a button so you can compare the investments you're in or investments you want to be in versus their, the the peer investments that you're choosing from right no, that's and great I think that next revolution is here it's coming and uh, we want to be at the forefront of it
1: no and you know we do a lot of uh work with you and we also do a lot of work on tools and analytics so even this conversation has spurred me to be thinking about uh, our our team's development tools and what we should be doing with more of your data Um, and and hopefully there's some follow-ups there from our team i think uh you know to help people understand what it is how their how their funds score on different uh you know these composite type metrics is really interesting. Any we have for the last minute any closing thoughts on? As you, as uh, I, mean, I think we're going to run out of time. But uh, where where can they keep uh, keep in touch with what you're doing at, at Owl?
0: Yeah, um, you know you can always visit our website um, and 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 you know reach out to us via the the info at owlshares We're happy to, to to engage with anybody. Um, you follow can follow us on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, myself and other team members, we we're often posting about ESG, and uh, we've got a lot of white papers coming out, which are going to be distributed through uh, uh, you know normal outlets for that. But yeah, no, uh, we're 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 pretty available for people who want to learn more, and um, and happy to roll up our sleeves to, to help people out and and Thank you, ben. figure out a way to tackle this 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 new involving ESG phenomena.
1: It's been a great conversation. We're talking with Ben Webster, CEO of Al Analytics. Thanks to Dion Simpkins on the board, our producer, Patty Hall. who listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132, and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show.